Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Today's episode is a preview of the 2023 Nito ATP Finals. We're getting there, folks. It's not, it's not the end of the season. It's not the last week. We have the next-gen finals in Jeddah to look forward to in the week to follow. But we are wrapping things up, and it is time for the year-end championships. I am going to give kind of an unconventional preview, just run down all the players in the field, how I'm feeling about their chances. I'll project their records in the group stage. That will leave us with semifinalists. And it'll be like a regular final weekend predict, uh, prediction just without the quarter-by-quarter quarter stuff because obviously there's no draw, uh, but there is two groups. And I also have a special graphic that I will tease right now, a special graphic that we can look forward to. I'm not going to break down every matchup like I could do that. Uh, I'm not going to. If you're disappointed to hear that I'm not going to break down every single matchup, uh, I will tell you this. I am going to be doing pretty regular content throughout this event. Uh, luckily, my schedule has freed up enough where I can do that. So I'm going to be talking about a lot of these matches, and uh, I hope that is some consolation for any of you who uh, would like me to go through each and every head-to-head -head here, which I'm not going to do. What I'm also not going to do is skip the ATP events that went final this week. I'm not going to do any match analysis, uh, but I will kind of talk about what I saw and the results that will wrap up kind of the, the regular programming for this year's ATP season. Mets and Sofia. Let's start with Hugo Umber winning in his home city of Mets. Said for a long time, he's way too talented to be outside the top 30. His record against top players has been exhibit A when it comes to objective evidence that he's Way too talented to be outside the top 30. And it's been bad at certain points the last two years. You know, there have been some injury things. Seems like COVID got him pretty good. But I think there were also some, you know, just tennis issues where wasn't making returns in play. Wasn't really uh, playing high percentage tennis at all and was kind of hoping for the best. And uh, he seemingly turned that around to the point where it, it's not just flashes right now. There's consistency on a week-to-week -week basis to the likes of which we have never seen from Hugo Umber. I'm talking, you look at the last five events he's played, quarterfinals are better in four of them. And the one outlier there 
was a third set tiebreak loss to Zverev in Paris. So he has been bringing it every single week. And specifically when it comes to Mets, uh, there was a lot of pressure here. He grew up in Mets. He's born in Mets. Um, you could see that in the first round when he played Dominic Team. Oh, by the way, he he had never played well here. 2018, Hugo Bear picked up his first career win in Mets. Over who? Our guy, Bernard Tomic. That was his first ATP win. Since then, zero wins in Mets. One in four record, kept losing three setters. So, you know, that begins to weigh on you. I think he was feeling it. Uh, got through team in three sets, and from there it was smooth sailing, and he kind of he kind of rolled everybody. Harold Mayo, uh, first ATP quarterfinal for him. That was his quarterfinal win. Uh, Fanini in the semis, Fabio was just, he was uh, not having it in the semifinal. It was one of those performances where it's like, all right, he's not particularly interested here. Umber beat him 6-love, six 6-2. Six and then 6-3, uh, 6-3 over Shevchenko in the final. Shout out Alexander Shevchenko. I think I've, I think I might have said last week, I don't know when it was or what even content I was doing, but uh, he's a player to watch for me next year. Shevchenko, I like his game a lot. First ATP final for him, so uh, congratulations for that. Again, with Umber, I think we're seeing more focus over the course of his matches. Uh, better movement, safer targets. He's still taking the ball early. He's still finding really sharp cross-court angles and uh, marrying that with a really good ability to redirect. Um, and that's why, like, he's just... He's very good at using the width of the court and creating baseline damage. Uh, but, you know, he needs to pick his spots. And also, he needed to make returns in play because... Again, for a while there, his return of serve was it was like a non-starter. You know, he just wasn't making any returns. I, I think Jeremy Chardy is just, he's, he's gotten him to kind of move back a little bit to give himself a little bit of extra time. And they figured out a way to maybe even adjust the mentality on the return of serve. And again, just go for safer targets and find a way to make them. And, uh, and maybe block occasionally as well. So, good to see Umber play well. There's some caution, of course. You know, he's an aggressive, relatively low-margin player making a post-U.S. Open run. We have seen that be fool's gold before. The way I would kind of counter that is, look, the signs have been there all year. When Umber was winning clay challengers, that's when I knew. Because his game is really poorly suited for clay. And you know when he's out there winning clay challengers, and I know there, I know it's a challenger. It doesn't matter. That was the first time that I knew that Umber was turning the corner and he was on his way up. Big day for French tennis. Manorino wins Sofia, third title of the year, fifth of his career. I mean, that kind of tells you all you need to know. I've talked about him on Monday Match Analysis a couple times already. I'm not going to do the whole Manorino thing. Uh, but, again, he's won more titles this year, the year he turned 35 years old, than he had in all the previous years of his career combined. So, it just had me thinking, 
we focus so much on the big three and their uh, almost miraculous uh, takedown of, of father time in a lot of ways for as long as, as you can possibly hold off father time. All of them have, and they've made great adaptations uh, to have really successful careers into their 30s. Yeah, we focused a lot on that. That's been covered a lot. What about everybody else? Now, right now, in particular, you look at the top 10, you look at the top 20, it's actually really, really young. There's a lot of youth in there. But let's not forget, like three, four years ago, there were a lot of Manorino situations popping up. You know, before this youth movement, we were seeing this athletes are aging better thing through the ranks, right? Fabio Fanini, John Isner, David Ferrer, Kevin Anderson. These are all guys who reach new heights north of 30 years old. Now, granted, most of them were early 30s, and we would, you know, hear things and say things like, 32 is the new 27, or something like that. So maybe the catchphrase for Manorino should be 35 is the new 30. Turin. General points here, before I, uh, I get into my thoughts and my predictions. This is the fastest court on tour. At least it was last year. And it was extreme to the point where nobody was breaking serve and there were a ton of tie breaks. And uh, when that happens, you know, you have two things at play. The year-end championships, it's already going to be tough to predict because the players are really close together and level. I don't think I need to explain that part of it. When you combine that, Right, you have a bunch of guys who are just, by nature of this event, they're all really good and they can all beat each other, right? Then you combine the fact that no one's breaking serve and it's like there's a third set tie break every other match. Now it becomes, now it becomes very 50-50-like. You know, like I think this is the hardest week to predict of the year. I don't know how you measure something like that, but that's how I feel. However, you got to kind of take what it is and think, okay, well, what can um, what can we discern about what is important in Turin, given the conditions, given what I just said? Well, one of the things I'll be thinking about is who do I trust in clutch situations? If we're going to see a lot of close matches, if the difference between winning and losing is going to be you know, one player saves both break points and the other doesn't, you know, and, and it's each each return, each each uh, player has one return game where they have a chance and it's who's going to convert um, and who's not. Like if, if that's the kind of sets that we're going to be seeing, who do I trust? Who's clutch? You know, that's that's it. I mean, sometimes these things are, again... It's not easy to figure that kind of thing out, uh, but I'll be thinking about that. Obviously, in terms of the speed of the court, there are other factors you know, that come into play. I think it's a real detriment if you don't serve well. This field, the serving is, is quality. I'll say that. I mean, this is a top eight where uh, you have vast majority high-level serving, high-level servers. Um, 
I would also consider not just who do I think plays well in tie breaks, who do I think does well in in high leverage situations, but also who's playing with less pressure because that also helps when things get tight. And then the other thing I'll say is every year we learn that tennis math doesn't add up. And I think that's a good thing to keep in mind before we get into this. There's going to be rock, paper, scissors situations. There are. There's going to be weird triangles where it's like, again, paper beats rock and rock beats scissors and scissor beats paper. And it's like, how does that make any sense? Because tennis, that's just how this works. Always be mindful that that's going to happen in this competition. It it can't really happen in regular tournaments because when you lose, you're out. But in this event, that's not the case. Um, I, on that note, uh, created a table that you may find helpful. If you're watching on YouTube, if you're listening to this on Apple or Spotify, you will not find this table as useful. Uh, but essentially... This will this can act, and you can pause it, and you can screenshot it. Uh, this can be your cheat sheet for ATP Finals head-to-heads. I I liked putting this together. I like looking at this. It, it's interesting to me. Do I think it's a great way to figure out what's going to happen in the event? No. Uh, but I will give you three takeaways from this table. Uh, first of all, Runa. Runa is six and two against his group. That's Djokovic, Sinner, Tsitsipas. He is 10 and 7 against the Turin field. I cannot tell you how impressive it is that we have a 20-year-old in this field that has a winning record. First of all, he has a win against everybody. So the other seven players, all seven of them, he's beaten at least once. And again, like he just hasn't been on tour very long. So he hasn't had a, he hasn't had a lot of opportunities to even play these guys. He's played Djokovic four times. He hasn't played anyone else more than three times. And Runa still has wins over everybody and has a winning record overall. That That's amazing. Like So looking at this table, that's probably the biggest takeaway that I actually find meaningful here is just looking at that. There are other things that I find misleading about this table. There are numbers that I don't trust. For example, Sinner, 2-10 against his group. His group is uh, is uh, Djokovic, Titipas, Runa. So he's also in the green group. I'll show you the groups uh, you know, soon. Um, he is 2-10 against his group. He is 13-25 overall. Now, that's not surprising. You know, the, the top 10 players that he's had success against are Alcaraz and Rublev. And everyone else, he struggled against. In fact... Like everybody else, last two or three years that Sinner's been on tour until this year, he's gotten he's gotten knocked around by these guys. He's gotten beat up by these guys. So his numbers aren't pretty, but he's just a vastly different player right now. Vastly different. So I, I don't know how much I care about uh Sinner's Sinner's record. Because of how different he is right now compared to, you know, when the the vast majority of the, his 13 and 25 record against the field. I mean, how many of those matches were before this season? 
Uh, I feel like a lot of them, and I feel like his record this season would be a lot better. I didn't, I didn't take a look, but certainly, you know, you look at uh, the two wins against Medvedev, for example, two and six against Medvedev, and the two wins have come in the last two months. And the last thing I'll say about this table is Djokovic. I mean, what a, uh, what a great, and this is not surprising, obviously, but what a great look at his dominance. And the impressiveness of his resume, his win percentage against the Turin field, and and also keep in mind, this is a really large sample size because he's been around for all of these guys' entire careers. His win rate is 72% against this field, 41 and 16. I want to put that number in perspective. Some of you may be less familiar with win rates. How good is 72%? 72% is better than Runa, Zverev, and Tsitsipas did against all competition in 2023. That is a better win rate than they had for the season, being seeded players week in and week out. So obviously playing lower-ranked players in the first couple rounds, and yet still Djokovic against this field has 72% win rate. That's amazing. All right. I'm ready to uh, reveal my group predictions, and then I'm just going to talk through each player. Um, that's how I'm going to do this, okay? So uh, I'm just going to hit you with it. Three, two, one. Here's the green group. Um, I have three players at two and one. I have one player at 0 and three. So Djokovic, I have him winning the group at two and one. Sinner, second place in the group at two and one. Runa, third place at two and one. And Tsitsipas in fourth at 0-3. So I'll run through the the players. I'm I'm not going to give you essays on this. Uh, for Djokovic, I think he'll play a lot better than he did in Paris for two reasons. One, he got some matches. And I just think that he is going to be better for it. Uh, my, my feeling all along with Djokovic for this post-US Open stretch. I thought things would be a little bit rough in Paris. I think by the time the ATP Finals rolled around, I thought he'd be a lot closer to 100%. So I'm going to stick with that feeling. But also the faster conditions are a bonus in my opinion. They put a premium on the serve return dynamic. They make his backhand more of a weapon. They emphasize the importance of redirections, pace absorption, precision, all of these things that Djokovic excel in. So I look at, you know, Novak winning Paris. And I think whatever we saw there, up it by 20%. And that's what I think we'll see at the ATP Finals. That said, I'm pretty high on Sinner and Runa here. So I figure one of them can beat him. I think, I think Runa or Sinner will be able to pull off an upset. And that's why I have Novak at 2-1. and one. Let me start with Sinner because ultimately I have him getting through the group. The concern with Yannick is there's a lot of pressure all of a sudden. He's in Italy. He's been tearing it up. He's supposed to contend. This is his first real ATP Finals in earnest. I know he played a couple of matches last year as an alternate. Uh, hopefully that experience helps him here. Uh, but he even said it in his pre-match press conference, pre-tournament press conference he feels the pressure. Now, obviously, he said that he likes the pressure. All tennis players say that. And it's kind of BS. Like, pressure is not a good thing for almost anybody. It's just something that he's going to have to overcome. I'm also curious to see if the first serve stuff continues. 
on one hand, Yannick Sinner has made adjustments to his technique and he's been playing indoors. So it makes sense that the first serve percentages have been so high. On the other hand, it's due for regression. Like he's been absolutely tearing it up, like first serve wise, over 70% every single match. It's like, can that really continue? I'm not sure. It's just something to watch out for that I wanted to kind of throw out there. Um, so those are kind of the negatives. The positives are he's been the, the second best player in the world post-US Open. He's the hot player. And usually players on hot streaks, I mean, we've seen it with Djokovic. We've seen it with Medvedev. Uh, we, we've we even seen it with players who kind of catch lightning in a bottle like uh, Grigor Dimitrov in 2017. Like hot players usually stay hot as long as they're not physically just wasted. And because Sinner didn't go deep in Paris, I'm going to kind of give him the benefit of the doubt physically. And I just think he's in a great, great zone right now. He's so liberated, so confident in the improvements that he's made in his game. And he's going to be, uh, he's going to be ready to go here in conditions that, that are uh, pretty good for him. Runa. Holger can be pesky in my opinion. I feel like the numbers that I talked about when we were looking at the head-to-heads, it's not a coincidence. They don't lie. He excels in these spots. He's an underdog against top players. Nobody's expecting him to win. He has struggled this year off clay, but he snuck into the field. And uh, I just think he's, and, and he's, he's looks healthy. He's been playing better, serving better, making more returns in play, finding some margin and some consistency from the back of the court. Uh, last couple weeks, the only reason he's been losing is because his, his legs have been just going out on him. So, you know, that is kind of a concern. This isn't the most grueling format uh, physically. It's also not the easiest format physically. So I, I see Runa as a guy who could be really dangerous in the group stage. He'd probably break down if he's able to get out of the group, group stage and get to the semis or get to the finals. Uh, but I, I think Holger is dangerous. It's just I can't give him the nod over Sinner. Sinner is so so much more reliable and trustworthy under pressure right now. Uh, with the way he's playing, I just, you know that the decision-making for Sinner is going to be sound. Where Runa, from time to time, he's just going to shoot himself in the foot. So I have a lot of, I have a lot more trust in Sinner, even though I have them both two and one. I give Sinner the nod on, on the tiebreaker. Pass, I have it 0-3. I kind of, you know, I kind of feel bad about this because I missed the mark on Pass in Paris. I should have, and I shouldn't have, you know, I did acknowledge that he was playing much better tennis, that, that things were looking good, that his game had stabilized, but I saw big servers in his section, and I kind of just threw him on upset alert because of that. Reality is Paris is slow enough where Tsitsipas in form, slow and low bouncing enough where Tsitsipas in form can protect his backhand. Steph wishes that these courts were like Paris. They're not. They're just so much quicker, which means the backhand return is a bigger challenge. It means he is not going to be able to hit as many runaround forehands. And he's going to have to hit more backhands in general. And it means it's going to be harder for him to defend on his backhand as well, even in rally. So these conditions go against Tsitsipas compared to Paris. But the real concern is the elbow. 
Now, you know, these reports, they're a little bit, I, I haven't really been able to pinpoint them, except I think maybe it's Eurosport. I couldn't quite figure out where these reports coming from, but um, apparently he's ended his practice early two days in a row and it's the right elbow. Uh, that's just terrible news. I hate to hear that, especially because this right elbow, its uh, it's been a problem area for Tsitsipas uh, repeatedly. Obviously, you know, surgically repaired. He missed the 2021, uh, or or was it last year? No, it was 2021. He missed the 2021 ATP Finals uh, because of an elbow issue. And then he had surgery in the offseason uh, this year, before this year, because of the elbow issue. So uh, to hear that he's having right elbow problems again, uh, that's that's kind of the nail in the coffin for me when it comes to a group in the green group where... I really like I really like the other three players a lot, so that's where I have Titi Pass. Um, unfortunately for for him, ending up zero and three. Um, he plays first up uh, tomorrow morning, and I'm sure a lot of people will be will be watching slash listening to this when Titi Pass has already played his match, and if he wins it, I will be hearing it in the comment section. I am well aware of that. All right, here's what I have for Red Group. I have Medvedev at 3-0. I have Alcaraz at 1-2 in second. I have Rublev at 1-2 in third. And I have Zverev at 1-2 in fourth. Yeah, I know this slide got all messed up. Uh, but whatever. It is what it is. Um, I will start with uh, Medvedev. Last year was not only a down year. So last year he went 0-3 at this event. Let me just say right off the bat. Yeah, like this year Medvedev is very different from last year Medvedev, but also that that was a little fluky. You know, he was just losing all of these razor close matches, and uh, you got the feeling even in the moment that the zero and three thing wasn't a real good representation of how Medvedev was playing at this event. And um, I love these conditions for him. I think they're great. The speed of the courts uh, it emphasizes his serve damage. It allows him easier offense from the baseline. Uh, the backhand becomes more of a weapon. He gets to hit a lot of them like everybody else has to hit a lot of them. But for Medvedev, uh, that's no problem, which is uh, a good thing for Daniil. Serve and volley is the problem on fast courts for Daniil. Lucky for him. He's got two guys in his group who won't really do it. Zverev will get to net, but it's a question of will he execute up there. And... Sometimes, a lot of the time, the answer is no, and Medvedev is able to profit off of that. Uh, in the case of Rublev, he's probably not going to be up there much, period, whatsoever. So Rublev is a great matchup for Medvedev. And then Alcaraz, the one guy who will serve in volley, the good news for Medvedev is uh, he can dominate on returns in play against Alcaraz. Like, Alcaraz is the guy, uh, like, yes, he's got he's got a good tactic in the serve and volley against Medvedev. But in terms of the serving disparity on courts like this, it's a big thing for Alcaraz to try to overcome. That's my biggest mystery head-to-head, -head, though, or, or the match that I'm probably looking forward to most is, is just Medvedev and Alcaraz rematching after the U.S. Open. And um, I would kind of said all year long that this would be the best conditions for Medvedev to beat Alcaraz on. And that's part of the reason why I ended up at 3-0. Um, I did have to think 
you know, hard about it because obviously Alcaraz does a lot of things that, that are good against Medvedev. I said I wasn't going to talk about the matchups, and here I am. All right. So Medvedev uh, winning this group. Alcaraz coming in second. It's no secret with Alcaraz. These are the worst conditions possible for him. He doesn't really have a good win since the U.S. Open. I just think mentally he's going to be able to relax here. I don't think he'll be overwhelmed. I think he'll have a great attitude. And I think there's opportunity in every single matchup in this group. I kind of go back to the pressure stuff and the nerve management stuff where if he's not in a major final against Djokovic or if he's not playing Sinner, I think he's got the best nerve management out of all three of these guys. He's got the best tiebreak record this year by far. And I just think that will bring him through. Like this is just a spot for Alcaraz where people don't really believe in him. The pressure's completely off. Uh, yeah, I don't like that his serve is a weakness, but I just think he finds a way to sneak through and uh, advance out of this group. Even though I have his record at one and two, um, he's going to play Rublev for the first time. I, I actually think he's on upset alert there. I think he'll go two and one if he beats Rublev and one and two if he loses to Rublev. I think he'll beat Zverev. Uh, Rublev, I like the indoors factor. But I don't like the court speed for Rublev. I think he struggles with returns in play against big servers in fast conditions. He struggles to protect his second serve at times um, in these kinds of conditions. Granted, Zverev and Medvedev aren't going to be very good at taking advantage of that. Um, and he has to play way more backhands. We know what Rublev wants to do. He wants to find forehands. So uh, there's a lot of negatives for me in conditions these quick, uh, this quick for Rublev. Uh, I think he's playing good tennis. I like him indoors, but I don't give him the nod over Alcaraz because of that, those things. I think similar to Alcaraz, these conditions don't help him. Uh, for Zverev, for him, it's not really, it's not, it, it's kind of a different issue for him that I have, which is that the tennis that he's been playing, and I know I picked him to do really great in Paris. I picked him to win Paris because I thought it was a, I just thought it was an opportunity for him to take advantage of what I perceived as a, a tournament where the top guys were not going to play well. Um, in a lot of ways, that was actually a really good read by me, other than Djokovic, right? But if Djokovic had, had fallen in one of those tight three setters, it would have been a great read because it would have been a great opportunity for somebody else um, to win. And that's kind of why I, I landed on Zverev there. But when you look, when I kind of, Zoom out, look at the big picture with Sasha. The tennis, to me, it there there has seemingly been something missing here where he's been too passive. He was too passive in those two matches in Paris where he went three sets with Umber and uh, somebody else. I'm just not seeing a lot of good forehand aggression from, from Sasha. Now, he's coming forward a lot, but I don't think that's a supplement. Like, I don't think that replaces the the baseline aggression because he's just... When he's not setting up the net approaches well and properly, it's it's not really a, a bonus for him. It's not helping him, especially because he's not an above-average volleyer. He's just an average volleyer. So you have to be offensive on this court. I like the serve. Obviously, I like the serve. But I am uh, I'm not convinced by by the rest of it, and that's why I don't have Zverev advancing through the group. Um. 
I didn't mention for Medvedev. The concern for Medvedev in these tight matches is the second serve. So I have a feeling if I'm if if Medvedev doesn't go three zero and I'm wrong in my prediction, I have a feeling we might be talking about some big major double faults. All right, let's go to the final weekend. I have Djokovic over Alcaraz in two sets, Medvedev over Sinner in three sets, and Djokovic over Medvedev in two sets. I'm not going to go too in depth here. Uh, I just feel like you know Djokovic. Djokovic feels like a layup here for me. Um, it doesn't. It's not very hard for me to get to uh, picking Djokovic here again. I think he'll be levels above where he was at in Paris, and I think he's uh, he's by far the best in these conditions. The faster, the better for Novak. I felt that way for a while. Indoors is also great for Novak. It's been a while since he's won an ATP Finals. I guess that's the one thing that's working against him. But uh, I do think that this can be the one where he snaps the the drought. Looking forward to it, everybody. Should be some uh, some good stuff. Again, I'll have a lot of coverage. I'll have a lot of content. Hope you enjoy. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean not a cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. New. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.